KUT's next AT Explained live show is April 3rd. Brand new stories about Austin's people, places, and culture told live on stage by your favorite KUT journalists. I've never gotten any specific invites from Steiner Ranch. And that's about the time Charlie chomped down on that chicken. I will hypnotize you into securing my law services. Join us April 3rd at the Paramount Theater for KUT's next AT Explained Live. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at austintheater.org. And we'll see you there. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Hello and welcome to This Song, the podcast where artists talk about the songs that change their lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth McQueen, and this is a special South by Southwest This Song Extra. Yes, it is South by Southwest here in Austin, Texas. It's intense and we're right in the middle of it. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a little tired, but not too tired to let you hear this interview with Butch Vig. Yes, that Butch Vig. I mean, he produced Nirvana's Nevermind, which was quite arguably the biggest record of all of the 90s. He's the drummer in Garbage, and he's in town to promote a documentary about the studio that he ran with Steve Marker in Madison, Wisconsin, Smart Studios. The Smart Studios story had its world premiere at the Paramount Theater on Wednesday, and if you're at the festival, you can go see it Friday at 11 a.m. at the Alamo Ritz. I started off talking to Butch about what we always talk about on this podcast. We talked about a piece of music that changed his life, but we ended up talking about so much more, about what it's like to be a producer, about how Garbage got started, and of course, about Smart Studios. So here he is, Butch Vig. Well, the single song that probably changed the course of my life is a song by The Who, My Generation. People try to put us to just because we get around I was really, really young, probably 11 or 12 years old. I'm not even exactly sure, but young. And I'd been playing piano because my mom was a music teacher. And they turned on the Smothers Brothers TV show. <laughs> and over here, the guy plays the sloppy drums. Follow the yellow brick road. What's your name? Keith. And the Who played on there, and they played My Generation and completely smashed their instruments to bits. My, my d- 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 generation. And I freaked out and thought to myself, I want to do that. I want to do that. You know, I think my parents were kind of freaked out by it too. But I started begging my mom and dad to get me a a drum kit. And my mom made me promise if I keep taking piano lessons, they would buy me a cheap drum kit. And they got me like a Sears $50 kit, not even really a full scale kit. But I started playing drums. And then I went out and I think it might have been the first album I bought was um, I bought Tommy and I bought Live at Leeds to about the Who sellout. I can see for miles and miles I can see for miles 
And I fell in love with Keith Moon's drumming, and that's why I wanted to play the drums. Now, I can't play even remotely like Keith Moon. In fact, most drummers cannot play remotely like Keith Moon. He was truly a unique, one-of-a-kind uh, animal on the drums, you know, just freeform completely from the start to the end of a song. But there was some spirit in him and this recklessness that I, I, I understood, and that's part of the energy of being in a rock band, I think. And, and uh, that's why, why I've been in bands ever since I've been like 15 years old. Like a couple years after I started playing the drums, I, I was playing in bands in, in my hometown. So, But that, that track, um, yeah, My Generation and The Who, they're still one of my favorite bands of all time. So it wasn't like you hadn't seen music or even like you hadn't seen rock music before you saw The Who, but was it the, did they just have a different energy than anything you'd ever seen before? Yeah, like a lot of other people in that era, I saw The Beatles play and Ed Sullivan and... So ladies and gentlemen, The Beatles! My mom had seen Elvis Presley years before, um, and I was exposed to a lot of music because my mom was a, a piano teacher and music teacher and she just bought a lot of records and singles. Um, but it was really the who where I sort of saw that spark like a, a, and felt like a visceral connection with, with rock and roll. This is what rock and roll is because it was dangerous. You know, it was, it was messy and um, scary. You know, it's kind of out of control. Now, not all rock and roll is that way, but at least that's my perception at the time. That is rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to be in that band. So you went out and you got a drum set and you started playing and then you played in bands and you were drumming. But at some point, you became interested in producing, which is a whole other thing. Was The Who part of that or like what kind of led to you wanting to go from playing in the band to like making the band sound a certain way like were you trying to get other people to get to that who space i don't know how i i, I was always fascinated with uh recording i had a little two track at home and i used to make um, like mixtapes on a reel to reel and i would start running the tape backwards and then i learned how to edit tape you know using a razor blade edit and and I got quite creative with that. So I was always interested in the, the recording aspect of it. Uh, when I went to the University of Wisconsin, I got a degree in film, but I spent a lot of time in the electronic music studio. And that's where I really think the bug for recording bit me hard because I, I spent hours and hours down there tinkering with synthesizers and uh, making really weird soundtracks for my fellow film students. And when I finished college, um, I sort of had a choice to to try and move to LA and try and get into the film business or sort of continue working in the local music scene, which I had started doing in Madison. And, and that's what I decided to do. And, and um, when I, I just wanted to have a place to record to make cool sounds. And then some of the bands that I was recording would say, well, you, you can produce this, right? And I was like, uh, okay. I wasn't even really sure what a producer did. <laughs> and I mean, now, now I know what a producer does. It's part an opinion, you know, I have an opinion and part of it is just being a psychologist to, to figure out how to get the, artists to come up with great performances so but I didn't know that at the time I was just trying to make cool sounds you've done a lot of great rock and roll and do you think that like having that that kind of first formative who experience kind of informed where you would try to get bands to go 
Like you need to go to this place of abandon where you're like destroying your instruments. Yeah. I mean, I fell in love with punk rock and even though I listened to the who and the Beatles and I guess, you know, Fleetwood Mac and what a lot of people would consider classic rock in the seventies. I felt like I kind of came into my own when new wave and punk started because I felt like I was part of that scene. They were my peers. And, and you could see bands like the Ramones and go, well, I could do that, you know. My friends could just pick up a guitar or a bass and you can figure out how to start a band, you know. It was a very DIY mentality. I like that kind of reckless sound that punk rock has, you know, that had and still has when it's good. Um, I think that's what I kind of took from the, those early Who records, is that kind of crazy energy. And that's what gets me excited a lot of times, is when a track has that kind of careening momentum, you know, that just, it's, it's kind of unpredictable in a way. And um, God, I think I probably made, over the course of 20 years at Smart, I probably did a thousand punk rock records you know singles or demos or eps or an album some of them were we do a whole record in a day you know we set up and just burn through it and if we were lucky we had two days we'd come back and mix it the next day you know something there is an analogy i think to to what i hear in punk rock that kind of that really insistent energy that i also found in the who i always liked the music when it had a little bit more of a rough edge to it you know i mean not everything i've done is not everything i produced has a rough edge to it i've certainly done some things that are quieter or more softer you know have a different vibe but um, I, I think that's what i still sort of gravitate to is that sound that's kind of messy I think you have a unique perspective too, and I'd be interested to know if if you have any like ways that you get bands to get to that place in the studio. Each situation is different. I don't know that I have a, a an exact way of pushing a band. Um, I think the most important thing is to get the artist to feel comfortable, so they're not self-conscious, you know, and that whatever that takes, whether it's um, extracurricular activities, bringing in something that might give them a slightly altered mood. Um, it just need to get them to let their guard down. And uh, I'm pretty mellow in the studio. I'm not a screamer or a shouter. I know some producers are. I don't really like to operate that way. I just like to get in a situation where the artist uh, just forgets that we're actually recording in a way. And I think that's when you get the best performances, really, when when they're not self-conscious. So how's it been to be a part of this project, the Smart Studios movie? Like, to go back and see, hear people talk about being in the studio that you made and working with you as a producer. Well, it's been a real trip. Um, the Smart Studio story is really Wendy's baby. She called Steve and me uh, immediately when we announced we were gonna close the studio. Wendy said, there's a documentary here. And Steve and I are like, really? Uh, I, there's not really a, a narrative arc, you know, like Hollywood likes 
three parts of a story you set up and then the there's the big chase and then there's the end where the guy gets the girl or whatever the, you know there's sort of a narrative arc and this is really more of a snapshot of a, a place in time and a, a moment where we were part of the underground and and uh, part of this scene that was far removed from the east coast and west coast are kind of left to our own devices and then we just kept sort of working and doing our own thing and then we filtered into bands that then went into the mainstream, you know, with Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. And so we're all part of that. And, um, but at the same time, um, being in Madison at Smart Studios was a very local um, facility that was very conducive to uh, the local scene. You know, it was part of a... Uh, we were intertwined with everyone there, and um, almost like a co-op in a way. If, if people need to borrow gear for a gig, or they needed to track someone down to do something, so if they needed to sleep somewhere, they would crash at our studio. Um, and I, I think we just felt like we were part of the community, and I think that's the thing you see in the film more than anything. It's not so much about the gigantic success that some of the bands that came through there had. It's more about the sense of community of, of the musicians who walk through there walk through the doors at Smart. Were you able to maintain that sense of community even after things started getting bigger and more mainstream? Like, did, did Smart, were you able to stay a part of the community? Yeah, you know, I had offers to move to New York or Los Angeles and set up my own studio and work with really big acts. And uh, I made a conscious decision after the success of the Pumpkins and Nirvana to stay in Madison and, and keep the keep the studio running and... and uh, and I kept bringing bands back there, you know. Occasionally I would I'd work on a, a, a bigger project that would go anywhere. It could be uh, New York or London or Chicago or uh, Los Angeles, whatever. But I still worked a lot at Smart. And, and uh, I, it was my home, you know. It, it, um, the studio, to me, was a clubhouse. I never really felt like it was an office or a place that... Um, that you know, oh, I got to go to work today. It was like I loved going there. Even if I wasn't working on it at anything you know, on, that, on a particular day, which was rare, I would still just go by and hang out because it was like our clubhouse. And like I said earlier, kind of this had this sense of community. People would stop by, and and um, that's the thing I I love most about uh, that studio is and and that I miss the most. You know, it's like you can make records anywhere that sound good, but it was really the the people and the sense of camaraderie that. Uh, uh, happened there every day, every day, pretty much. Do you think that that like grounded you once your own band started to like achieve international success? First, I had success with Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins, and that was a real head spinner, especially when Nirvana went to number one because none of us saw that coming. And then I decided, yeah, I'm going to stay and keep working at Smart Studios, and then. Why we decided to start a band named Garbage, I don't know. But it was more, again, out of a sense of uh, camaraderie with my mates, uh, Duke and Steve, who were you know, my good friends, and we started doing remixes together. We found Shirley, and it was sort of Garbage was going to be a one-off. You know, we were just going to make one record, and I was just going to go back to producing full-time. None of us wanted to tour, 
And then the record took off. Vow started getting airplay on alternative radio stations, and the label begged, begged, begged to go out and do a handful of shows. So we reluctantly said, oh, we'll do six weeks. That turned into an 18-month tour because as soon as we started playing, I realized how much I like being in bands and how fun it was. And everybody said, you're crazy. You're going to lose your production career if you do this. No one's going to want to work with you. And especially if garbage fails, you know, it's just you're, you know, who's going to want to work with you when they look at you made this, this album that flopped. And luckily the, the record took off and, and then I spent the next 10 years uh, making garbage records and touring all over the world. And, and we based that all out of smart studios. And I think that was really smart of us to keep, keep ourselves grounded there because it, um, it kept us very level-headed, you know. I'm only happy when it rains I'm only happy when it's complicated And though I know you can't appreciate it I'm only happy when it rains You know I love it when the news... And below me you can hear Only Happy When It Rains by Garbage and if you want to hear the story of the place where this song was made... Well, then you can go see the Smart Studios story at the Alamo Ritz at 11 a.m. on Friday, March 18th. And I want to thank Butch Vig for sitting down and chatting with me. And that's it. We've come to the end of the special South by Southwest extra episode of this song. This song is a production of KUTX 98.9. It was produced and edited by David Sanger and myself. And I recorded that interview by myself on a very special reporter on the go setup lent to me by KUT, our sister stations, Matt Largy. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Peter Babb and Deidre Gott for everything they do for this program. Our social media guru is Antoinette Masando. And yes... Our theme song is Hard Proof. Afrobeat, if you're in town for South by Southwest, you might want to go check them out. You can follow this song on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter. Our handle is at this song KUTX. You can like us on Facebook. Just search for this song KUTX. And you can email us. We are this song at KUTX.org. And if you want to get more of This Song episodes delivered right to you, then please become a subscriber on iTunes. And if you like this episode, please leave us a nice review. All right, get back to South by Southwest. I know I will. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you later.